It's not the social network that spreads the disease. It's your contact network. And your contact network is not just made up of those people that you know. It's also made up of people that you don't know at all, strangers. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with somebody who is making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, we're very pleased to welcome back Valdez Krebs, who first appeared in episode three of this podcast, and is a renowned expert on social network analysis and founder and chief scientist of the company OrgNet. In the previous episode, we discussed the many positive benefits of building networks, such as creating new knowledge and fostering innovation. However, in this episode, we really wanted to respond to current events and talk about contagion in networks, given that we're in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak, which has just been classified as a pandemic by the World Health Organization. Valdez has been sharing some really interesting posts recently online about stopping the spread of contagion and contagious diseases recently, which is well worth reviewing, and we'll share the links in the episode description. He and I had a really interesting conversation yesterday about the differences between good and bad contagion, and the different responses required to deal with a biological epidemic as opposed to with an information epidemic. We also talked about how contagion can leap from one domain, such as healthcare, to other domains, such as oil and finance, which is also happening right now. So I started out by asking, what is contagion in networks and what should we do about it? We're used to building networks to distribute good things like ideas and knowledge. And now we're faced with a bad thing flowing in our networks, a disease. The bad things that flow in networks are disease and disinformation. Which do you think is worse, the disinformation epidemic or the biological epidemic? They're they're very different things, but they're related, right? Well, they are related. The way they're different is that with a disease, I don't have to know the person that gives it to me. But with disinformation, to believe it, I usually have to know that person or be part of that group that believes it. Disinformation contagion does happen in our typical human social trusted networks, but disease contagion happens in those networks, but also jumps those networks via strangers. So I can be in Starbucks this morning and I can be standing in line, and someone behind me sneezes. I have no idea who they are, but their network has now just jumped my network, and I'm going to be sick within whatever the period is, 14 days. And I might not even be aware of that. Whereas with disinformation, there's probably a conversation, there's probably a sharing of of something that gets person X influencing or convincing person Y that something new and unfactual is true. 
So does that mean yeah. the actions that we take in response to an inf information epidemic are different to the actions we take in response to a biological one? I mean, obviously, we're not taking people into hospital when there's misinformation spread. So yes, of course, the actions are different. But is there something procedurally different in terms of how you would deal with one type of epidemic rather than the other? Yes, uh, the disease is easier because the disease, first of all, is recognized. I'm sick. Second of all, the fact that it does involve strangers, it's easier to, to distance yourself, to not go to large events, to not go to crowded places. And others that may feel they've been exposed to the disease may have had contact, they may self-isolate. But with uh, disinformation is you really don't know you're sick. And that's, that's a totally different thing because the disinformation traveling within communities, the grand sociological rule of homophily, birds of a feather flock together, you know, just makes that group tighter and stronger. Homophily is a similar people cluster. Yeah, bird, yeah bird, birds of a feather flock together, like attracts like. That just makes those groups of like tighter. Those bonds within the group just grow tighter. There's really no way through logic convince those tight communities that they shouldn't believe what they believe because it's more than just that fact. You're attacking their whole bond of being. And so that's why attacking disinformation on the basis of facts, it doesn't even work amongst, amongst scientists. There's this great debate going on now in the network science community on whether everything is or is not a scale-free network. It's kind of like the Oprah effect. You know, everybody loves Oprah, and everybody listens to Oprah, and if Oprah recommends a book, everybody goes out and buys it. To a degree, that is, that is true. But in many networks, and I have hundreds of data sets to prove my point here, that is not true in how work gets done in organizations, in communities. There isn't just one person. It's not everybody that's connected to So scale-free networks don't exist in real life, so you don't get exponentially increasing connectivity with fewer and fewer people in, in a community? They do exist. The problem is that those that discovered that they exist think now that they exist everywhere. So they extrapolated too far. So, I mean, Oprah's a, a celebrity, right? In the language of social media jargon, she's an influencer. You know, she has influence. People listen to what she says about book recommendations. So there's different roles in a, in a network, aren't there? I'm kind of curious, just thinking to the current coronavirus epidemic that we're facing globally, what those kind of different roles are and whether the actions that we take to try and foster good contagion in information networks are merely the opposite actions to the ones that we would take to avoid bad contagion. The greater the risk and the greater the difference between the behavior that you're currently doing and the behavior that this outside influencer is uh, exposing to you, the more you'll need reassurance from others in your network that this new behavior is, is really okay. Going back to what, you know, how this whole scale-free thing came into existence was that the scientists that discovered it studied the internet, and they studied the physical internet, and they discovered that there's certain sites on the internet, like Google and like Amazon, 
that everybody goes to. And the technology of the internet allows that, you know, allows Google to have a million visitors a minute. But a human network, that's impossible. You cannot have a million friends a minute. The physical reality of the human species is just not set up to do that. And so there's difference between physical connection and difference between social and liking and influence connection within human groups. And again, the influence, the exposure to new behaviors and the reinforcement of new behaviors usually happens within those groups. It's not uh, a scale-free phenomenon. Just thinking about the actions that we take to avoid bad contagion versus the actions that we take to foster good contagion in a network, do you just do the opposite things or, or is there a different way of dealing with bad contagion like the coronavirus? Well, the things that you do that are opposite, instead of weaving a network to improve the transmissibility of ideas, knowledge, you put up barriers or you fragment the network so that things don't jump from community to community. Once a virus gets into a community, communities tend to be much more connected internally than they are between each other. And so things can spread quickly within a community. So once the coronavirus comes into a family, it's real hard for the rest of that family not to get sick. It's hard because you're within the same confined space of a of a home or, or, or an apartment. So you, instead of weaving, you kind of try and fragment the community. In what way are the actions perhaps different in dealing with bad contagion? When a bad thing is flowing, you want to increase distance. So you want to make it hard for the contagion to jump from one community to another, or you just want to increase the path length for that contagion to travel. It seems like time is a really kind of crucial dimension. With regards to coronavirus, there's lots of charts showing we want to delay the peak epidemic until the summer when the medical services have more capacity to deal with it. How do we know we've reached peak epidemic? Even though the um, disease itself is a global phenomenon, fighting it is a very local action. Every person that's sick gets uh, looked at in terms of who they've had contact with. Depending upon the testing that comes back, people either need to be treated or monitored or, or tested again. But once things get kind of out of hand, like in Italy, where it's hard to keep track of individual cases, then you have to take these larger measures to separate people. So all public events are canceled. Many public places are closed early on. You know, the disease, if followed and recognized with proper testing, the disease that that big leap in the curve can be lowered. But if that's avoided or missed, then naturally the, the disease will spread because people will, will go about their business and you will have many of these smaller communities infecting those other smaller communities around them. Because the key there is, it's not the social network that spreads the disease, it's your contact network. And your contact network is not just made up of those people that you know, it's also made up of people that you don't know at all, strangers. So the person sitting next to you on the bus, or the person standing behind you in Starbucks. 
So what are the consequences of that? I know one of the things that you talked about briefly in your most recent blog post on this was the role of automated data collection. The um, only way <laughs> to track a network with people you don't know is through some kind of automation or external surveillance. And in this case, you know, surveillance is usually a term that uh, turns people off. But in this case, it's actually healthcare surveillance is actually a good thing. Most of us have a uh, mobile or cell phone with us. And that phone gives off signals of where it's physically at. Going back to my earlier examples of sitting next to a sick person on the bus, having somebody sneeze behind you in the line at, at Starbucks, then those contacts would be recorded in the mobile phone database and it would show that your mobile phone and this other person's mobile phone were together for 20 minutes on the bus ride, then we could do this, this network analysis, this unraveling uh, who had contact with whom and how did the disease spread from person A to person B. Because when you are discovered sick, that's important and we need to look at your contacts, but we also need to discover who that person was that sneezed behind you in Starbucks they might have been the ones that were previously sick and they passed it to you. I think there was an article I read about something like that happening in South Korea right now, where there have been lots of, well, privacy concerns. People have been revealed as having affairs and there's been various fraud and other activities as a result. But I think technically it seems to be feasible. Yeah, and unfortunately, those other social aspects of our lives will be re revealed. Yeah, somebody will have to explain why why their phone was in the presence of a of another phone for three hours. That's part of the problem. We are used to dealing with our networks from a point of mostly privacy. Now, under a, a disease surveillance atmosphere, that is no longer true because as long as you have your phone with you, this ability to map which phone spends time with which other phone is is very possible yeah and i've heard that south korea is looking at this uh singapore and also uh, china itself singapore and and china are much more centralized leadership governments so they can probably do more with their population than open democracies like europe yeah no absolutely there's definitely some big ethical concerns that really need to be thought about in terms of trading off that privacy for the wider public health benefits in cases like this. And I'm really keen to talk about how contagion kind of jumps from one domain to another. So for instance, yesterday, Italy shut down the whole country. And at the same time, uh, we had kind of unprecedented drops in the financial markets. I don't know if one is a direct consequence of another, but I'm just interested whether you've got views or reflections from your other experience about how contagion kind of spreads from one domain, you know, the biological epidemic domain into another domain, you know, financial markets or elsewhere. What can we learn from that? And what, what do we need to do about that as a result? So uh, we see that that people see what's happening elsewhere, that affects their thinking, it, it influences their thinking. We, we are connected and what's happening around us, especially what's happening immediately around us, will influence and, and change our, 
our behavior. So all of these things are, are connected and they're all connected to coronavirus, but Italy and oil are not directly connected. I think Italy realized that things had gotten out of hand and they needed to do something drastically to fragment the normal networks that make Italy economically prosper during a normal day. They decided to take the economic hit as opposed to the disease hit. In two weeks, hopefully, this thing will will die down. And that is a, a drastic approach, but once something gets so ingrained in a in a group, you have to do something drastic to 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 break up the group. It's a trade-off though, isn't it? Because if you put in place significant measures to halt this biological spread, it could then trigger fear or panic or misinformation. That's true. But I think once enough people realize that the disease is serious and it's not a hoax, that things need to be done and sometimes extreme things need to be done to stop this uh, outbreak. But we need to have the backward view of, of history so we can't judge exactly today. But I think we'll see that countries like like Singapore, and again, they're small, so they have an advantage there, did a lot of things right. They attacked the problem immediately. They recognized it. They started testing. They started this healthcare surveillance. And it looks like they're in much much better place than, than just about anybody else at this point. South Korea also did a very aggressive attack against the disease. And they, they've had casualties, but, but they also seem to be better than their neighbor to the north, China. So thanks again to Valdez. I was really struck by his comments that on the one hand, managing misinformation is much more difficult than the biological epidemic itself. And I wonder what that means for how we best handle the situation going forward. And I was also struck by the role that surveillance technology can play in mitigating the spread, but also the ethical considerations and trade-offs that need to be carefully considered. He emailed me shortly after our conversation to summarize his top three tips for disrupting bad contagion with a network. Firstly, make the paths in the network longer. In other words, flatten the curve to allow the healthcare system to handle the outbreak and not be overwhelmed. Secondly, remove steps from the network paths and fragment the network. Lastly, create holes in the network. Don't be a connector. Self-quarantine, protect your home, and stop the virus spreading between groups. He also commented, as we discussed, on the fact that in an ideal world, we would be able to find the optimum nodes to remove in a network, but we don't think we have that information yet. But it is possible to work towards that, perhaps in this pandemic, or to address future epidemics. There are a couple of links in the episode description that go with this episode if you want to find out more about Valdez and some of the things we've talked about. And he and I said we may get together again on this topic once we have a more complete picture of what happens next. In the meantime, I really hope you found this episode not only interesting, but also useful, and we'll return again very soon for our next episode. Before we go, can we ask that you rate, comment, and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who you think might like it too. This will encourage us to keep on finding interesting people to talk to and to share those conversations with you. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that addresses the complex and collaborative challenges of our increasingly connected world. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, please keep on washing your hands and please also keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.